Welcome to Candid Catholic Convos, a program brought to you by the Catholic Diocese of Harrisburg. Our mission is to humanize the church and help you to grow in your faith, love, and understanding. I'm your host, Rachel Trochet, a cradle Catholic who's only human and struggled with faith on more than one occasion. Each week, you'll hear engaging, down-to-earth interviews and actionable strategies you can implement into your life with ease to help you grow closer to God. If you're ready to open your heart and step fully into the person God created you to be, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Candid Catholic Convos. We are undergoing some exciting changes in my office. The recording of this podcast has been sharing the television studio we use for the Faith Alive series with Bishop Gaynor since its inception. And while it's been wonderful, it's time for a dedicated space just for recording. And I'm really excited to see the new recording studio taking shape right before my eyes. When I was a kid, we used to sing this song called He's Still Working on Me. The fact that I still remember this song word for word over 30 years later speaks to how much I loved it then. I even remember the hand gestures that went with it when we would perform it at school. I won't sing it for you, but the first verse repeats itself several times, and it's, he's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth, and Jupiter and Mars. How loving and patient he must be, because he's still working on me. As I'm looking at this room with metal studs and ripped out carpet, lights hanging from the ceiling, currently in the middle of construction, this song popped into my head. I think so often we're convinced that we're either perfect with no room for improving, or we're so broken, so damaged, that there's no coming back, no hope for restoration, when in reality, we are a walking, talking construction site. I'm a vastly different person on the inside and the outside than I was just five years ago. The Future Podcast Studio looked vastly different just last week. God loves us as we are, and too much to let us stay that way. Today, I'm super excited to be chatting with Father Dwight Schleilein from the Basilica of the Sacred Heart of Jesus in Hanover. If anyone knows about construction and restoration, it's him, because his 250-year-old church is currently undergoing an enormous restoration project, a true labor of love that both speaks to why we honor our history and the power of change. Father Dwight, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm really excited to have you on Candid Catholic Convos. Welcome to our program. Would you mind telling me just a little bit about yourself? Okay, my name's... Father Dwight Schleyline, I was uh, born here in Hanover, where I live now. I grew up in East Berlin and um, went to Bermudian uh, Springs School. Let's see, I went to Bermudian from until eighth grade. And then I learned that there was such a thing as a Catholic school. So I asked if my, I started asking questions about is there such a thing as a Catholic school and found out about DeLone Catholic and I asked if I could go there. So I ended up going to DeLone Catholic for four years. That was my first time in Catholic school. And then um, had kind of a deeper conversion experience in while I was at DeLone. Um, But it was more involved in my parish actually, which is Immaculate Heart of Mary Parish in Abbottstown. I got involved in the charismatic prayer group there when I was a junior had some powerful experiences with that, uh, got really into my faith, and eventually headed towards going to Franciscan University of Steubenville for college. So I went there for college, got a degree in classical languages and philosophy, Um, kind of discerning what I wanted to do after that. I was still wrestling with the possibility of getting married, was even engaged at one point. But then after college, I um uh, went came back here worked in a bank for a year and a half um and then from there i discerned uh, seminary went into st vincent seminary in latrobe for four years and then no i'm sorry i went to st vincent's 
in Latrobe for one year, and then I was sent to Rome to study there for four years at the North American College. And I was ordained a priest in 2010 by Archbishop Brolio. We didn't have, we were between bishops at the time. We were between uh, Bishop Rhodes and Bishop McFadden. And so Archbishop Brolio ordained me a priest in Harrisburg, and then I was assigned to St. Patrick's Parish in Carlisle for four years. And then I spent uh, six years as pastor of Our Lady the Visitation Church in Shippensburg and campus minister at Shippensburg University. And then in 2020, in the middle of the COVID pandemic, I was assigned as pastor here in October of 2020 here at Sacred Heart. And I've been here for almost, well, two and a half years now. This is, gets me closer to home, actually, than I was in Shippensburg because my parents still live in East Berlin. And uh, yeah, so it's coming here. There's a lot more family connections. So when I came here, my uh, people, parishioners here still remember my grandparents who used to be parishioners here back before 1967. Between 1950 and 1967, they were parishioners here uh, and they still remember them. And they remember where they lived and they have all kinds of connections. So it's um, it's kind of fun being here because um, in some ways they kind of know who I am before I even got here. So when they saw the last name, it's a it's a unique and rare last name. So it's like if you're a Schley line, you're related to me. So but uh, that's a little bit about me. You and I are kind of like six degrees of separation almost because um, I went to Catholic school. I went to St. Patrick's in Carlisle, actually, from... Oh. Well, I was born in New Jersey and started Catholic school there. And then when I was in fifth grade, we transferred to St. Patrick's in Carlisle. And then my first foray to public school was high school. So it was kind of flipped, but that's so funny. And uh, I love what you said about uh, the family connections in church. I always feel like that's so powerful when like, it's just, you feel kind of plopped into this, like already made family and they just kind of absorb you. I, I think that's one of the best feelings in the world. Yeah, it's been a great experience here. Um, there's so much there's so much history in this parish. It, it's Sacred Heart Parish here is the oldest church probably in the diocese. It might might be competing with St. Mary's in Lancaster. I think that's pretty old too, or St. Joe's. One of those two is is around the same time. But um, this is really the mother church in a lot of ways. Of I mean, it's it's older than the cathedral. Um, you know, by like 100 years or something. Uh, the parish dates back to, was officially established in 1741. Um, now, there was already act Catholics and activity going on here, even in, in 1720s and 30s. But uh, but back in that time, Hanover, which is like the biggest town here, was just uh, woods. <laughs> um, so just to think about the change, like how big Hanover is and it's growing and um, this is older than that. Um, so yeah, we have the, perhaps the, probably the first Catholics here were Native Americans. That's the theory anyway, because um, they were evangelized by the, uh, the Jesuits who were up in the New York, Canada area, but also the Jesuits came in the 1600s for English Jesuits came to, um, Southern Maryland and, uh, so there's a theory that it's possible St. Isaac Jobes possibly was in this area when he was an, a prisoner of the, I think, the Hurons. It's either the Hurons or the Mohawks. Um, but he was eventually martyred. Uh, so it's possible that he was he was in this area as a captive because there would have been a lot of, they believe there was a lot of migration and moving around uh, for hunting and seasons and stuff like that. So. Um, that's kind of the beginnings of the Catholic presence in this area. And um, the, you have the, it was really the English Jesuits coming up from Southern Maryland who made really started this parish um, in the 1740s. The first pastor was Father William Wappler, um, who I don't know too much about. I know there's a, there's a street named after him. Um, but, you know, in that time period, the, we were still a British colony. And it was not easy to be Catholic back then. It wasn't really legal to even have a church, an actual church. They'd have what's called mass houses. So it's a house where they did mass, uh, just look like a house. And 
there was a log cabin here at one time, but it wasn't until after the revolution, American Revolution, that we were actually able to build a church. So the first actual church here is 1787. Uh, so that's right after the American Revolution. And the, you know, it's really the, um, when you walk into the church, that, that the first part that you're walking into is the 1787 church. And it's the 1787 church ended right before the transept. So the church is in a T, you know, like a cross cruciform. So the, the crossbar part of it is from 1850, 1850, Um, But everything before that is uh, the 1787 church. So yeah, the, the parish grew. At one time, it was the biggest parish in the country. And uh, it really covered, this parish covered uh, up to New York, the New York border down to Virginia. I mean, at one time it was like, it was a, it was like a Jesuit hub. Um, and all of the other parishes in this area were basically started as missions of Conewago. So they would, the Jesuits would live here and go and do mass, for example, in Abbottstown or in Gettysburg or in Buchanan Valley. And if you notice all these parishes, a lot of them have Jesuit saints as their names. Buchanan Valley is St. Ignatius, uh, St. Francis Xavier in Gettysburg, even Immaculate Heart of Mary, the Jesuits promoted that. So that's Abbottstown, uh, St. Aloysius in Littlestown. We have St. Joseph the Worker in Bonneville. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of that. Um, it was really the Jesuits who evangelized this area. And um, so it grew 1850. The, they needed to have a bigger church, so they added that front part. They basically had to build that. Originally, that was cemetery, so they had to build over top of the graves of some, probably some of the Jesuits, possibly the oldest graves. Some of the bones were moved to another part of the cemetery. I think some of them were not, and um, but they built that part on in 1851. You know, the church was then consecrated on August 15th, 1851, and the reason... August 15th was chosen is the original Conewago Chapel was actually called Chapel of the Assumption. It was in honor of Mary's Assumption. Um, it wasn't called Sacred Heart. Eventually, the Jesuits wanted to go with the Sacred Heart instead. So, um, so that's why it was consecrated on August 15th, 1851. Our goal for the current project that we have is to have it done by August 15th, and then Bishop is supposed to come for a 5 p.m. mass on August 15th for the uh, to bless the church again, um, because that's the original consecration date. So, so yeah, you have the uh, 1850 was 50 51 was a huge time here uh, where they added on. Uh, thankfully, the camera was invented, invented in the 1830s, so we actually do have some photos from like the 1850s, 1860s, 1870s. The church, the front of the church changed drastically in 1887 because the original front of the church, the very, uh, what's that called? The apse that had a huge fresco of the Last Supper. So if you came into the church, see this huge image of the of the Last Supper on the back wall, um, right behind the altar. And because it was on the wall, it got damaged by water. And so they, in the 1887, which would have been the centennial of the church, 100-year anniversary of the building of the church, they um, covered up the Last Supper with about, they put about three inches of plaster on top of it and, um, paint, you know, painted that decoratively. And then they put, they had a guy named Filippo Costagini make a huge painting of the apparition of the Sacred Heart to St. Margaret Mary with uh, a little image of her spiritual director, St. Claude de la Colombière, kind of hovering near the top. And that was put there, that was in 1887. So then they covered the Last Supper. When, in, interestingly, when we, we had that Last Supper painting uh, restored, um, let's see, my first year here, so about, I guess it's almost two years ago now. And um, when we took down that painting, we didn't know what was going to be behind it. We didn't know what kind of condition that we knew the Last Supper was original, but we were able to see that that middle third of the Last Supper fresco for for it being 170 years old. It's in pretty good condition.
but it is 170 years old. So it's, uh, you can still make out Jesus and you can see like John, the beloved disciple. Um, I think you might be able to see one disciple on the other side, but um, it was incredible to see that. Um, the, the people were so excited when they saw that. Uh, so we don't really have any plans to fix it because we don't know how we would make that accessible to people. Um, although I have thought of an idea, but uh, it's going to cost a lot of money if we want to do that. But so anyway, yeah, th this is a place of uh, lots of hidden treasures. This whole project that we're doing now, it's just we're finding that they're they're like removing the the painting the paint over that happened in the 60s and the 80s there was two times where they painted over a lot of stuff and particularly in the 60s they fundamentally altered some things um not drastically but there was just some some beautiful art on the wall some some of it was 23 karat gold that they just painted over in the 60s and um they're recovering it now they're 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 they have this and people always ask this question how do they take off some layers of paint without affecting the others. It's a very scientific process that these people are very trained at doing. Um, the one guy said, you basically have to have a chemistry degree to know how to do it. You, they, they do some experiments and they, they try it, but they make sure that they, they're only taking off the certain la layers of paint and not affecting the original. So they've done a lot of that here and they're, um, they're recovering the original beauty of the artists, the, the 1850s artist in particular, who is a guy named Franz Stecker, um, who actually died a young man. He died in his 30s, but um, he did most of the 1850 part of the church. And uh, he was he was a master artist. I mean, what we're uncovering now, he was he was incredible, um, incredibly beautiful, incredibly theological, uh, a very strong emphasis on the love of God. He really is really, really strong emphasis on the love of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that emphasis of the sacred heart. You know, he's got three, at least three images of the Trinity in the in that crossbar part of the church, the transepts and the the center part. And he's got the Father and the Son and the Spirit like close to each other, like like their faces are like touching each other. And then the spirit is kind of the dove is like between them. So it's really, really strong uh, images of the love of God. Um, the strongest I've ever seen really. And, um, and sometimes we can be critical of the last, you know, after Vatican II, a lot of times priests, all they talked about was love, 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 love. And it's, you know, kind of that sixties hippie thing, but um you know, before that, you know, when the Sacred Heart devotion was all about the love of God, and and you know, this was in some ways ahead of its time, showing the incredible love of God uh, visually through art. Um, yeah, Franz Decker was huge on that. He was, and he was very, very talented. I do want to piggyback off of what you said about love, um, yeah. because I mean, if if you've watched any amount of HGTV or, you know, seen anything online about, you know, home improvement projects or, you know, just restoration projects. It is, it is quite a labor of love. Um, I oh. for one love old houses. Like we just bought one that's over 122 years old mm -hmm. and your parish is like literally double the age <laughs> of my house. And I'm already looking at my house going, oh my goodness. So this must be, this must be a monumental not just a process, but, but a labor of love. So how, how long have we been restoring so far and what is the projected, you said August 15th, is that this year? Is that the next coming years? Yeah. So that's this year. Um, so the little bit of the history of the actual project itself, uh, the way it all started was I, when I first came here, um, I noticed a lot of the peeling on the walls, a lot of cracks and a lot of just plaster peeling off. And so I started asking questions. Well, first of all, I, I knew that the Last Supper painting or the, the Sacred Heart painting needed restored because the previous pastor actually already had a quote from that. Um, so he said, here, this needs to be done. And um, here's a quote for it. So I contacted, I got that ball rolling. Um, 
right away, pretty much. Then the owner of that company, I asked him, uh, what do we do about the walls? And he's he kind of answered that question with another question. He said, well, what do you want to do? He says, he says I said, well, just fix it. <laughs> he's like, well, what do you mean? Because he said, so they had done all this research and they knew because we have a lot of old photos that there was a lot of art underneath there. And he's like, why don't you restore what's underneath? Which I didn't, I wasn't even aware of that at the time. And I was like, oh, that's an interesting idea. I didn't even think of that. So that kind of is where it all started. It got the ball rolling and I started asking questions and eventually we put out, um, looked for bids. We got six companies that we looked at and um, we ended up going with a company that is really the, um, how would you say it? I mean, this, the company that we went with is the, is the owner, the founder of that is the one who all the other companies learn from. Okay. So like, he's the top, his name's John Canning. He was an immigrant from Scotland. Um, and he is, this is, this is his very specific kind of, um, gift and charism like he does this kind of thing like restoring old art a church art so it's there's a there's an official position in going back in the middle ages called church decorator which is not somebody who just puts flowers out on the church a church decorator is a very was a very um it was like saying an engineer it was somebody who was very uh talented on the art of the church so that's the company we ended up going with uh, their price and what not just their price what we were mainly looking at is they actually were going to fix the cracking and the peeling that was the main thing we wanted we want us we want you to fix the cracks we don't want you to just paint over them and make them disappear and they're still there so they had a whole process which they told us this is how we'll fix them and uh, other companies will would say we don't know how to do it or um they didn't have they couldn't get the materials to do it for whatever reason but anyway this company actually is fixing the cracks so yeah they ultimately we went with this company it's called canning liturgical arts uh john canning was a founder and then um they we officially started on october 17th i waited until all the weddings were done that year my last wedding was october 15th because on october 17th they were going to start installing scaffolding so I tried to plan it out that way. We could have started it earlier if I, if I was, but I didn't, I didn't want any upset brides. So, uh, so, um, so October 17th, so officially we started, we did a couple things before that. We did what's called a mock-up. We did, uh, we did the vestibule, um, which were easy things. Um, but then October 17th, they started installing the scaffolding, um, they kind of wanted to have the very front part of the apps done by um, Christmas, but they weren't able to do that. I didn't think they were going to be able to do that either because it's that there was just there's a lot to do up there. But so the the plan ultimately is basically two major phases of the project. This we're in the first phase, which their goal is to have this part done by Easter. So that's basically the front part of the church. So that's the 1850s part of the church. They, they're doing pretty well. Um, I have my doubts that it'll be totally done by Easter, but they still, they still have the goal. And, and they, what they keep doing is they keep sending more and more workers here to, to, to get, keep it going. Uh, I don't want them to rush it, though. I want them to, and they're, they're not rushing it. So, so, yeah, by Easter, the scaffolding that's in the front part of the church uh, which should be done. And then the rest of the church that's not, doesn't have scaffolding, will have scaffolding from after Easter until August 15th, probably. Um, that's the 1787 part of the church. So the, the second phase is really the older part. And that will be including the choir loft, uh, most of the seating area, most of the pews. So we'll see what that uh, looks like. I wanted to talk about, so the the one Franz Stecker mural that's on the wall, it's on the south transept, is the crucifixion scene. And I've posted this on Facebook, and they they just restored it the way it was. So originally it had a, it was a crucifixion. You have uh, Mary Magdalene, I think the, the Blessed Mother, and then it looks like St. John there at the cross. 
in the 60s they had they had kind of just painted over the border around the painting which also included a little a little scene of Jerusalem buildings in the background with a rock there and the sky scene they had kind of painted over all of that in the 60s made it more simple they just restored it and it's stunning it's just stunning uh that's i don't know how else to say it <laughs> the the older what we're finding the general trend we're finding is the older art that's underneath what they call the overpaint when they painted over it in the, in the 60s and 80s the older art is much brighter um and more vivid and more 3d than what they did in the 60s and the 80s they they kind of flattened a lot of it there was a lot more gray that was put into it um the older one had a lot more gold colored um bright it had a brightness to it the the differences are I mean, this church has always been beautiful. It's always been beautiful. But um, what what we're going to see when it's done, I, and people can't imagine that they, I, people can't imagine that it can be even more beautiful <laughs> than it is now. I mean, it's it's going to be stunning. Um, yeah. So the the crucifixion scene, they they're they've basically finished the fine art part of it. Now they they have to do the incidentals, which is like the border around it and the rest of the walls. That but the fine art is done. The guy that they have doing that is from um, I think he lives in the Scranton area, but he's been doing this kind of work for forty years. He got that crucifixion scene done in two days. I don't know how he did it, um, but he's that's that's how skilled he is and. You know, it looks brand new. It looks, I mean, it is stunning. And there was just elements that they restored, which would have, you could tell coming from an old school, um, you could tell it's, you could tell somebody from the 1800s painted it because they, for example, the Jesus on the cross, they have both feet nailed to the cross. I'm pretty sure in the 60s they made it had they had one nail going through the two feet but the older version had two nails one for each foot so it's like things like that like you could tell in the 60s they they kind of there was this thing going on where uh people were writing about how did the crucifixion happen and the scientists were going into it archaeologists and doctors and they were saying that well had it probably happened this way so they would change the art to kind of conform to the new scientific understanding um so you can tell some of that's going on here historically yeah it's it's stunning the next thing they're going to be we're working on they they've uncovered the nativity so Secker also did the nativity scene on the north transept um they've uncovered the original now it's not in it's it's not as the crucifixion scene was in better condition than this one so this one's going to take them a little bit more time Maybe it's three days instead of two days for the for the guy because he's so skilled. But um, it's also there's a lot of differences. This one is at night, and um, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph are in kind of a barn in the original, which the barn part was taken away in the '60s. They're restoring that as well, and it'll be at night. And there might even be a little image of Bethlehem or something in the background. Um, I, I haven't looked that closely at it, but. Uh, so I, I'm excited to see what they do with that. Their work is is impressive. That's so think, fascinating to hear about, like how the artwork has just changed with the times. Like, <laughs> like even in even in my 122 year old house, like it is covered in wallpaper because we actually found floor plans from 1973, which is probably the last time this house has actually been updated. But to see the thought process of like, this is why they did certain things. So I never would have known that there was an actual difference in the way that the feet were painted based on the science at the time that they changed that. That is so, that just blows my mind. And to yeah. have it done at such a scale, I mean, because when you think of smaller paintings, I mean, it's still an undertaking i'm not i'm not a painter by any stretch of the imagination but when it's like on a wall that's a pretty big that's a pretty big undertaking and then to be able to have the science and the skill to to quite literally peel back the layers to mm -hmm. see how it was in its original glory like 
that is just yeah blowing yeah and i'm just supposing there i i'm not i can't verify that that's uh, that's that's kind of my thinking as to the difference but i i have to I, I'm not totally sure about that, but it, but that's my. It makes a lot of sense though, because I mean, the '60s, '70s, and '80s when they're like, no, how we were saying we were doing it, that's not quite how we're supposed to do it, and that that was like that was a big chunk of time where a lot of that was happening, um, right? With science and with art, and just the style of art was changing. Like, like you mentioned, adding they added a lot of grays, and I think that was pretty popular, and especially monochrome you know, yes. tailing like that was, that was a big deal. So that would make sense um, from an art historic, uh, an art history perspective. Yes. Yeah, they did. They made a lot of things monochrome that the big four huge statues, saint statues in the front of St. Aloysius Gonzaga, St. Ignatius Loyola, St. Francis Xavier and St. Peter Claver. Um, in the sixties, they made them all like white beige uh, originally, they were multicolor, and they've finished those already. They are stunning <laughs> as well. Um, they look awesomely beautiful now. And they look like when they finished St. Francis, uh, no, I'm sorry, when they finished St. Ignatius, who has a, he, he looks, he's dressed as if he's doing mass because he has the uh, chasuble on with the maniple and things, and he's holding a book. And when they first finished him, uh, I remember come walking to the church when nobody was around and looking up there and thinking somebody was standing up there. I mean, he looked that real. He 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 looks like. I mean, that's how it does. You can tell it's not just. I mean, it does. It looks like a statue, but at first, when you first look at it, you're not sure if it's a statue or a person. So that's how. Um, and I remember the one the artist was asking me. Um, the the kind of the color he put on the on St. Ignatius's face, um, this color of his skin. And he said, well, somebody said I should make his skin lighter. Uh, I said, no, he looks he looks Spanish. Like he looks like he's from Spain. He's it's kind of olive colored skin. I said that it looks very natural the way it was. I was like, I don't I don't think you need to make it look any lighter. You know, it's it. He looks he looks real. Um, and that's what they were going for. They they wanted to make it look real. So, yeah, they're this is an impressive company and and what they're what they're getting done. Um, this is the first church they've done in our diocese, and they are they're kind of hoping to get more in our diocese. But uh, but they uh, they they really have a passion for Catholic churches in particular. So, yeah, that's that's very apparent in the amount of time and just dedication they have to making it not only beautiful but accurate like I love that he was very invested in making sure that he was depicted historically accurate and I think that that is amazing this, so this restoration kind of reminds me of a little bit like obviously not the same texture but uh, it reminds me a little bit of the temple in Jerusalem and how mm -hmm. At times in history, it was, you know, both a glorious place of worship, but there were also times in its history where it was very misused or invaded and desecrated by outsiders, but God never abandoned it. He restored it, just like the basilica is being restored. And we hear all the time that our bodies are not only temples of the human, of the Holy Spirit, but we're also human beings and human beings are inherently broken. Um, and we live in a state of brokenness. And some of us have misused our bodies, our temples in various ways that might feel like, you know, after all we've done that we're not worthy of restoring. We're not worthy of being restored to our original glory. So what would you say to somebody who doesn't necessarily feel worthy of, of restoration of the, the time that like the workers are putting in on the Basilica? It's a lot of time. It's a lot of effort. It's a lot of love who might not feel worthy of that time, that effort and that love in themselves. Yeah, that's uh that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> I think on the one hand, this, this may be not what everybody would say in response to that question, but um, I think it's okay to accept the fact that we're not worthy. I think that's probably actually a healthy starting point um, that that's true we aren't worthy, but we also are, it's not based on worthiness. Like, um, 
God loved us even though we aren't worthy. So I, I have, even in prayer, it can be a great place to start to say, Lord, I am not worthy to even know how to pray. So teach me how to pray. Uh, I think this is one of the things that that humility of of accepting us where we're at is um, accepting that reality and accepting ourselves in that unworthiness is actually a great starting point. Uh, and I think this is why we find conversion stories so amazing um, is that people can be so low in whatever way, either being harmed by somebody else or having done harm to someone or, you know, and they can be so low, but it's it's when they are in that low state that they are start to be built up and restored again. Um, and the bigger problem is those who never, never get humbled like that. <laughs> those are the type of people Jesus was like, you scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you know, he's just, he's just going after them because they don't have any sense of their unworthiness. So if you feel unworthy, that's a good place to start. So we start there in our unworthiness, we have to accept it. So what you might be talking about and what some people are in is like, well, I'm not worthy of restoration. I'm not worthy of anything being done to me. What they, what, if, if the, the dangerous or the, the bad part of that is to say, I should be so much better. And because I'm not so much better, therefore I'm trash. You see what I'm saying? Like, and the reality is that sense of I should be perfect, that that kind that's an obsession. That's that's a pride. That's a uh like I should be up here, but because I'm not, I I shouldn't even go to church, I shouldn't be anything, I don't want to be a hypocrite. It's like because I'm not up here, I'm trash. I'm nothing. Right. It's like an all or nothing mentality of like, well, because I'm not perfect, then I must be garbage and there's no in between. Right. So the 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 key and the antidote to my mind is accepting that you are unworthy, like accepting that and accepting that this kind of impossible ideal standard is it wasn't God's will up until this point in your life. Like we strive for that, but like for whatever reason, God allowed you to be humbled in this way so that you could be built up. Um, it is, it's the same pattern through right here in this building. Um, over the years, over the last 70 years, there's cracking, there's peeling, um, you know, the, the paintings start to disintegrate actually, if you don't do something, um, it's it's so we can kind of be in solidarity with all of creation by recognizing that that we aren't perfect and we we sh it's that's not that perfection is not it's a it's a it's a it's an utopian image it's it's not and we shouldn't be holding ourselves to that we should accept that we are sinners and accept our past accept our unworthiness and then let god start working in us and that unworthiness. The place where I really go to with this is I've done work with Rachel's Vineyard. Rachel's Vineyard is a um, an apostolate for women who've had abortions. And um, I mean, you know, this is where I've really experienced this, this whole dynamic, the, the strongest, it's, it's just, it's a powerful dynamic. Um, and the people in the, in these, with these experiences are, are in such a low state and so kind of humbled in so many ways that, you know, something beautiful comes out of it. And the, the, the brokenness, the sense of unworthiness, uh, there's always, and there's always going to be that in this life, they still have to manage those experiences for the rest of their life. And that's what Rachel Vineyard helps them do. It's, it's not a, like some retreats that you go on, it's like you come out feeling like a million bucks. Well, when you're in Rachel's Vineyard, you, you've been brought so low that what you're coming out with the retreat, you don't feel like a million bucks, but you you feel empowered to manage the misery and to um, let God be present to you in the misery. And it's 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 a very it's a very interesting dynamic that people who haven't experienced that don't wouldn't understand. But it's it's 
in some ways they they've taken up a cross that others have not. If they can do it, <laughs> we can all do it. If if people in that situation can get through this, we can all get through it. Um, anyway, I could go on and on about that, but it is a it's a great analogy that you came up with here. I didn't even I, I haven't hadn't even thought of that way of looking at this process, but it is, yeah, restoration is. I mean, one person here was somewhat critical, saying, "Well, why are we worried about?" what they did decisions they made you know 70 years ago and and the art on the walls and you know our carpet is messed up we need new carpet and and you know most of our parishioners are older and and why would we spend money on this and it's like i want i i had some strong words with in response to this this criticism because this isn't just we're not just fixing up things here to make them look this isn't just an issue of aesthetics for there's a couple things going on here theologically the main thing is it's our belief in the communion of saints we are in solidarity with our ancestors and our ancestors as catholics our ancestors in the faith have a strong voice and this is what one of the ways that our being catholic is unique we have saint statues we we read their writings we remember what they did and that's what we're doing here too. And and in some ways I'm paying homage by doing this and especially restoring the original art as much as possible to what it was. Um, we are basically making a powerful statement saying we are not better or smarter than them. That's part of the passion is like the sense of the communion of saints. Um, you know, this company and I are passionate about respecting the original from our ancestors like this is the original intention of this space is this in the 60s they altered it and so those alterations weren't necessarily sinful or wrong but there were it, it wasn't there was a there was a kind of a pride thing going on there and it's it's not necessary i think it's time for us to recover and rem remind ourselves of some of the basic things that people from the 17, 18, early 1900s did, the way they lived, that was strong, and and families were strong, and they they they're not dumb. They were not dumb people. Like we're not smarter than them. Do we have more advanced technology? Sure. Do we did we correct some of the things that they did wrong? Sure. But we're we're screwing up in ways that they never did and never would have. They would be right. scandalized the things that we say today. Anyway, I could go on and on with this. <laughs> no, it's like it's that old saying, you know, those who don't learn their history are doomed to repeat it. You know. Right. It's that kind of thing. And we can see some of that even in what they did. I mean, it just you did know, the whole monochroming and the whole like, you know, I just, I could never have done, I could have never made the changes that they did here in the 60s, like, like not today, because it's, it's, there's a short sightedness there. And actually, one of the things this company told us, some of the things they did in the 60s would be considered unethical today. You couldn't do it that way today. Because, because these are like, you got the national, the sense of the historical preservation, National Historic Registry, like, you can't fundamentally alter something like that because it's his it's it's from 1851 you you don't just go in and correct their theology or uh make it the way you think it's you know because because we're smarter than all of them you know like that's nobody ever says this but it's it's the undercurrent in a lot of our culture we we think we're smarter than everyone who lived before us and i think that's fundamentally incorrect I think we're and and when we get to the next life, we're going to meet people who don't think anything like us, and are going to be a lot smarter than us on a lot of things. And we can learn a lot from them. And I I enjoy reading like um, John Timmons Riley was a parishioner here. He lived in the eighteen nineties, uh, and he wrote books. There's books written about our parish. So the, the he wrote in the eighteen nineties, Conawaga. It's just called Conawaga Collection of Catholic local history, which you can get a reprint of it online, I found. And um, I mean, he goes through and he says some of the most beautiful things. He has he has some of the most strongest insights 
on things. Um, and he's what I like about him the most is he's passionate. He's he's very he's not passive and kind of, you know, he's passionate about the faith, about the church. And, and it's beautiful. Um, so anyway. No, I love that. And, and I, I wholeheartedly agree. I feel like there's this whole movement to, you know, you, you should do your best and, and my best should be the best for everyone, but do your best. But when you know better, do better. You know what I mean? So like at probably maybe in the sixties, you know, the best that they knew was this is, this is how it should be. You know, that's what we knew at the time. Um, but now that we know better, we're doing better. We're bringing it back to, okay, that will, at the time that might've been acceptable, but it actually wasn't quite up to snuff. So we're going to do better now that we know better. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's, I, when Jesus says, judge not and ye shall not be judged, I, I, one of the things, one thing that struck me one time in prayer was like, that's not just like the people who are alive around you, like <laughs> judge not and ye shall not be judged also can apply to people of different generations, like people who lived hundreds of years ago, like we could go back and think of them as so homophobic, anti-woman, anti-this, anti-that, racist, and all this. And I and think- also looking at it from a lens of like, of right, right now, not a lens of like the time. Like we yeah. didn't, you know, I wasn't alive in the forties and fifties. The right. viewpoint was completely different. And we're trying right. to interpret things that were done 100, 200, 300, 400 years ago that we don't have the lens to really view through. And when you- because I've heard people, there was a big debate on with one of my friends on Facebook about, you know, the Bible and the story about Abraham. And mm. people were trying to explain to her, like, but you're looking through it through a lens of somebody who's raising a child in 2023, not like right. living right. on the side of a mountain and having to sacrifice right. animals. And she's like, well, I don't right. understand why he would have asked. And they're like, you're completely missing the point here. Um, right. What you're describing there is 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 the modern pride has been instilled in us in the education system. It's 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 just it's presupposed. It's 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 a fundamental belief in our education system that we are smarter and better than everyone before us, and we've corrected all of their mistakes. There that there's there's some truth in that, okay, but it's it's maybe ten percent of that is true. Ninety percent of that's false. There's a whole bunch of other stuff that we have. I mean, most of us couldn't live. We would die, most of us would die with the living conditions these people had to deal with. We, our poorest people in this country, live better than a king did a thousand years ago. I mean, like, just watch videos on YouTube about their the toilets and how they went to the bathroom back then. I mean, it just we have no idea. We have we we are so clueless when it comes to most of that that very very human stuff that they dealt with that we've we artificialized right? oh so absolutely even so my husband's in the military and when he was in basic training um we weren't allowed to communicate through phone or email or anything except like once a week he could call me for like 10 seconds the rest of it was letter writing um, so I really <laughs> was transported back in time. I was like, wow, this is, this is painful having to communicate this way to a loved one and then have to wait. And then when he was deployed, we thank God had, we had FaceTime and all that. And I was like, man, I don't know how women did it during Vietnam, during World War II, during Korea, where they had to wait for these letters where there wasn't that immediate gratification of like, oh, I get to talk to them. Oh, I know that they're okay. You know, right. it's, it's such a culture shock, essentially, nowadays, that um, I don't, I, I would not have been able to be a military wife during Vietnam. I just, I would not. Nowadays, yeah. I, you know, with FaceTime and the advance in the technology, it makes it easier. It doesn't necessarily make it better, but it makes it easier. Um, yeah. So I 100% I agree. And I think that our brokenness kind of plays into that. A lot yeah. of like, we, we rely on that really like, because I'm hurting, like, this is what I have to do to feel better. Or like, it's easy to get super comfortable 
in our brokenness. Like, this is what I've always known. This is how it is. You know, making the change is what's hard. Making the effort to be better is what's hard. Just like a physical restoration to the church or even to our bodies is super hard. A spiritual one is also just as daunting. So what advice would you give to someone who desires spiritual restoration, but is, is scared of what it will require of them? Yeah, the first thing I would say is is to uh, be okay with being unworthy um, and kind of accept yourself where you are, I think, because that's that's fundamental. You just accept this is where I'm at. And then the very next thing after that is to take all those feelings to God and be as blunt in prayer as as you can and recognize that he's hearing everything that you say. Um, and just say, God, this is how I, I feel like crap. I feel unworthy. Um, I don't feel like I'm even worthy of you bringing restoration into my life or changing me. But I also know that you are generous and you're magnanimous and you you give a lot of yourself when you don't have to. Um, I just was meditating recently on how we how God doesn't need us. <laughs> I've in some ways being a priest, you kind of what this is one of the occupational hazards. You kind of feel like the weight of the church is on your shoulders. Like, like I if if I don't perform well today, people are gonna suffer. There's some truth to that. However, I also have to recognize that God can fix my mistakes <laughs> and that it's not all on me. Um, it's, 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 this is really his church. He doesn't need me. It's, it's a privilege for, to be called for him to work through me. Um, and it's the same thing with becoming, becoming a better person, being restored in Christ. Um, it's not, it's not what we're going to do. You're, if, if you're going to be really, if you're really going to grow, it's, it's not going to be something you do. It's, it's, it's you humbling yourself to God and saying, God, I am unworthy. I am incapable. Um, but I know you are generous and I ask you to make up for what I lack and, and just watch what happens after that because God will take you on a journey. If you're willing to be that humble before him, Here, here's a really good, this, this, this incident in scripture. Okay. This is one of those passages, which I, your first couple of years as a priest, you just kind of, you kind of cringe when it comes up on the lectionary. Um, it's when Jesus, that the woman, the Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and um, wants her daughter to be healed. And uh, Jesus says, it's not right to take the food of the children and throw it to the dogs. Okay. Now, how many priests talk about what that means? How many times does anybody talk about that? They don't because it's not a very nice thing to say. Okay. And people just don't want to uh, come up. They don't want to, they don't want to approach the reality that Jesus is saying something that we would consider offensive. Okay. He just called this girl a dog and he said her whole, whole culture, that ethnic group is a bunch of dogs. That's, that's what he is implying there. It is not right to take the food of the children and throw it to the dogs. Okay. That's not the reason that story was recorded though. Because what's amazing is that Jesus actually heals her daughter. <laughs> okay. So people can forget that part when, if you just get hung up on this. Um, I used to avoid that talking about that directly, like the plague. It's now become one of my favorite passages because it totally flies in the face of our modern pride. To, to hear somebody talk that way and to have Jesus talk that way. I mean, I read there's there is somebody out there, a popular Catholic, I won't even say who it is, but this popular Catholic person who says that that the Canaanite woman had to teach Jesus how to not be a racist. Now, I think that is total bump because Jesus is the teacher. Like we learn from him. He doesn't learn from us. And what I think is going on there is, first of all, why does he call them a bunch of dogs? Because the Canaanites sacrificed their children to, to the god Moloch. The, the, the Canaanites killed their children as an act of idolatry. Okay, that's why he calls them dogs. It's not, that's not unreasonable. I mean, they, they their culture was dog-like. It was, it was 
a corrupt and evil culture. And he had no problem saying that. Um, it, you know, that's that bristles us the wrong way in our we, our modern sense of niceness and all this. But he doesn't have a problem saying the truth. And what's the most beautiful part of that whole thing, though, is that what she says in response to that, she says, yes, but even the dogs eat the scraps that fall from the master's table. That level of humility, if anybody's willing to be that humble before God, now I don't say nobody should be that humble before any man or woman. You should never be that humble before a human being. But before Jesus, before God, being that humble, you have no worries about being unsafe or unprotected or being being misused or abused in any way. But that level of humility is why her daughter got healed. And so we can sit back and our modern pride, we can criticize Jesus for, for being ethnocentric. We can put all kinds of labels on him. We can do all that, but then we don't get the healing. Or we can be humble before him and be so humble. This, this woman was amazingly humble. The fact that she was asking for her daughter who survived the fires of Moloch, she didn't, she didn't sacrifice this daughter to God. So she was being very uncultural. She was acting outside of her cultural realm by doing this, by even asking and loving her daughter. Jesus recognized that faith. And he said, you know, great is your faith. And be, but what was her faith? Her faith was radical humility before God, radical humility, willing to, to I mean, if she was a modern person, she, she can you imagine? It's not right. It, it just you just were called a dog by the son of God. Well, you know. How dare he say that in my culture? He has no understanding. You know, all the all the different prideful things we could come up with and say, none of that will get you the healing. You're not going to get the healing from Jesus if you're going to have that kind of attitude. The, the, the attitude has to be total humility before God. No, I and love that. that. And I, it reminds me of the story. I, I'm not going to do it justice, but it's the story where uh, I think it's a blind man comes to Jesus and he he looks him in the face and he says, do you, do you want to be healed? Like, do you want to be changed? Yeah. It's, what are you, not necessarily, what are you willing to do to be changed, but how much faith are you going to put in me? How, how humble are you going to be? How, how much are you going to humble yourself to accept that you need yeah. change and that you actually want change? And it reminds me of, you know, that part in mass where we say, Lord, I'm not worthy that you yes. should enter under my roof. But if you say the word, I, so I shall be healed. That's it's it's so very powerful. And I think people forget. They're like, well, Jesus was he was so nice and he was so amazing. But yeah, he also flipped some tables and he told you where to yeah. go. You know, if if you weren't on the right path, like he was he was he taught about love, but it was a firm love. It was a it was a tough love that yeah. I think people aren't, they, they misconstrue what love is. Maybe they have a, they didn't have a, a great example of what love is, but I think modeling, modeling your love after Jesus of like, yes, he loves you, but he's also going to tell you when you mess up, like that is right. love. Like you can't change if you don't know where you're messing up at. Right. Yeah. He, his personality the personality of Jesus Christ is he's not a 20th century American. No. He's not, a, he's not, that is not who he is. And that I, I've been frustrated over the years of people reading him as if he is, as if he is something like the big, I think the most popular image of Jesus that I grew up with is that he's a hippie. I mean, you always kind of see him. You can even see little pictures of him, um, you know, playing soccer with kids. And I mean, it's like, okay, but, but, you know, you start reading the gospels and it's like this, this really strong personality comes out and it's very loving, but it's, it's, it's also, there's a toughness there. There's a tough love. And it's again, Franz Stecker, you know, the love that you see up here in these paintings, it's, that's, that's Jesus. You know, you see him on the cross there bleeding. Um, you see, the people mourning him. I mean, you see the humility in the manger um, and you see the love of the father, but it's like the emphasis on France with Franz Decker here is the emphasis is on the love in the Trinity. It's, it's that love, that powerful love there that we, if we're humble, 
And if we don't try to become our own gods, we can participate in that love. But you see, even that's a little humbling. It's sometimes like as Americans, we just want to hear what well, Jesus just loves me for who I am. Well, yeah, he does. But what it's what's more important than just, you know, my feelings about Jesus is what's going on already in the Trinity for all eternity that we get to be a part of. Like that's that's what we should be excited about. And um, yeah, there's so many examples like you brought up that example. Do, do you want to be healed? Jesus saying that. Um the centurion, that's, that's Lord, I'm not worthy that you should end under my roof. That's the centurion. He said, I never found such faith in all of Israel, but that's because the centurion was so humble that he was, he was respecting Jesus's own religious tradition that said that he, Jesus couldn't come into his house. Jesus was willing to set that aside, said, I'll come anyway. But this man said, well, no, I know you're not supposed to. So just, I know you have the power to do it now. And that's that, again, there's that humility. It's a radical humility. And it flies in the face of what, how we're trained. It really does. And I, it's probably the most difficult thing for people today is like to be that humble before God, where we do not have, we totally take off our rose-colored glasses and our filter and, and our box. And G, we, we let, just God, let God be God. Let Jesus be who he is. And listen to those gospels and hear the real Jesus and not, try and correct him when he says something we don't like to hear. Another example of that, this, I love this passage, where the woman comes to Jesus and anoints, anoints him with the very, very expensive, costly um, oil with the alabaster jar. It's in John's gospel. It's, it's kind of also, it's Mary. Um, there, I think, uh, I don't know if it's Mary of Magdala or Mary, the uh, sister of Martha. She's criticized because, by, by somebody who says, well, this money should have been taken and given to the poor, right? And now that's, to some of us, that sounds like something Jesus would say. But the reality is Jesus didn't say that. Judas Iscariot said that. Jesus said to Judas in response, he said, he basically said, the poor you're always going to have with you. What she's doing for me is an act of love. She's giving her whole life savings to prepare me for burial. He says, the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. So like, again, that flies in the face of our Marxist 20th century thinking. Like Jesus only cares about the poor. Jesus does care about the poor. He came to save the poor. But that doesn't necessarily, that's not a Marxist way of understanding that. That's not what Jesus's understanding is. That's Judas's understanding. <laughs> Judas is the Marxist not Jesus. And, um, you know, I think if you put that on a quiz and said, who said this in the Bible, this money should have been taken and given to the poor, Jesus or Judas? I think a lot of people would say Jesus, but then you read it and it's like, oh, Judas said that, you know, the savior, the real savior is the real Jesus, not our version of him. It's the real Jesus. Um, and that, that's one other thing I'm passionate about. So this is why you can see, I want to get to the real thing here, like the real Jesus the real sacred heart, like what the real sacred heart basilica as it was initially like intended, like that's, that's the whole thing here. Um, I don't want somebody else's manipulation of that or changing of that or correcting or updating. Let's go back to what's original because that's, that's the authenticity is, is uh, the most important thing in my mind. And maybe, maybe that's a generational thing. I'm so, I think we're passionate perhaps about being authenticity. I see this in the high school students at DeLone. Um, you know, authenticity is what, is what connects you. Like the youth respect authenticity. And that's what I, I hope I am. And I hope this project is, and, um, and I, I hope in my ministry that I'm showing people the authentic Jesus and not, not my version, not your version, not Pope Francis's version, not Bishop Gaynor's version, but the real one who's leaping off of the pages of those gospel and who is, I, I believe, accurately depicted in the art here in this church. I love everything that you just said. I think that is so very, very true. So you mentioned that August 15th is kind of like the end goal date um, but where can we go can, to learn more about this restoration? You said that there were some old, lots of old photos available. Are they on the Basilica's website? Yes. So 
Um, on the Basilica's website, uh, you, there's a button on there that says interior restoration project. Uh, I do have photos in there of the project. I do have letters and uh, updates. You can see some of the things that are being done. I hope to get this more. Oh, there's a really good one of um, the St. Francis Xavier statue. Oh, that's that's a really good one. Um, yeah, we're trying to keep that up to date. Um, so that's the main place, I would say, uh, on our parish Facebook page, Sacred Heart Basilica. Uh, I put a lot of updates on there. That's also on the main page of the parish website. You have a feed for the parish Facebook page. Um, there's a lot of photos on our, on our website. So in terms of the funding, I, I might put a little plug in here for that. Uh, we have, we've done pretty well in raising the funds for this project. It's costing about $2 million. Um, we, have, we have a matching grant from the Wareheim Foundation for $500,000 that we were awarded, uh, but we have to raise 500,000 and then they give us 500,000. Um, we are only like about 14,000 away so we just need about $14,000 more to get to that, uh, the full amount of that 500,000, which is really, that's a really good spot to be in, but we could use a little bit more. We did, we're also talking about restoring the altar. So the original altar uh, is like Carrera marble. Uh, in the sixties, they took a sledgehammer to part of it. Uh, we found some of, we found those pieces in our barn uh, of the old altar. So now all of a sudden we're, we want to restore that, the, the altar as it was, the full marble altar. This company's even looking at a company in Italy if we need some more authentic marble. They're, they're getting the actual kind of marble from Italy. Um, but that's going to cost us another 180000 in addition to what we've already. Uh, so, so we could use some donations. Um, the best way is to send us a check. But um, I think we have there, there's a QR code on our, our brochure, but yeah, the parish website is is the the best place to go. Um, yeah, that is awesome, and I will definitely link the parish webpage in our um, show notes on Spotify. So if anybody feels called to donate, um, that they have easy access to do so. So Father Dwight, thank you so much for this awesome conversation. I love art history and history itself and just diving into um, authenticity. And I hope that whoever needed to hear this heard it. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much, Rachel. Thank you so much for listening. Our goal at the Diocese of Harrisburg is to walk with you on your faith journey. So if this episode resonated with you in any way, the easiest way to show your appreciation is by sharing this program with your network or by leaving a review on your listening platform. You can also support us financially by making a donation online at hbgdiocese.org DAC and clicking the make a donation button. Thanks again, and we'll see you at church on Sunday.